Folks, I'm back here again with uh, my buddy Mike Gordon, former owner of Chilkoot Charlie's. How's it going, Mike? Good. This is our third podcast. You're uh, you've become a regular on Landmine Radio. Well, I'm enjoying it. I just finished your book here, and uh, it's a fascinating book, Learning the Ropes, I've, we've talked about before, and I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other stories in the book. But um, if folks haven't listened to the previous podcast, it's a fascinating story. It's about kind of your time with Coots and your issues with kind of substance abuse and women and all that and then you started climbing and you climbed all these peaks and all these con- continents and pretty um you running marathons i mean it's pretty pretty wild you, you surprised you're, st- you're still <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i took up climbing after i quit smoking which was the hardest thing i'd ever done um i couldn't have run around the block when i was smoking cigarettes but uh I got into running marathons and ran 15 of them. I ran one a year roughly for 15 years. My wife and I used to go, we used to plan our vacations around them. So you were trying, in the book you kept saying you are trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, but you couldn't yeah, couldn't I quite get there. never quite did it. Something always went wrong. It's in, You know, I just finished the book. I was reading it kind of when I was flying or when I was having coffee, and I just finished it. But it's interesting the that you tried to do the seven summits, and you did six, and your third Everest attempt, you got to almost 28,000 feet, but it, it's kind of crazy. The, so the group you were with, all these guys, these guides and these people, they, did they just leave you or they, they just, you were just by yourself on Everest with this it was faulty what, oxygen. It was, it was what you call a cluster. I mean, you had this faulty oxygen. You said the oxygen mask with the breather was getting, yeah. fogging up your goggles and you're up there at 28,000 feet. Well, it didn't work the day before at all. And that, it, I, had it switched out by one of the guides who happened to be attentive uh, on that day. The next day there was nobody to be attentive, and it wasn't working that day either. So so you were, in the book, you you talk about, which is a v- very common occurrence in climbing, um, some people can get up and they can't get down. Right. And you, you had that moment where you were sitting there and, and you were probably a little hypoxic and you were not thinking straight, and... Eventually, you said you decided, look, I'm not going to die here, so you you went down. Yeah, fortunately, I was thinking straight enough to come to that conclusion. Do you think if you would have kept going, you would have got up to the top? Well, I don't know. Uh, I I think it's probable that I would have gotten to the top, but it's also probable that I might not have made it back down. Well, and several of your people, you've... Because I'd been, I'd been laboring without oxygen for sometime that morning i don't know exactly how long and i've been on plenty of you know 12 15 hour summit days and still had plenty of poop left and i was just exhausted so well some of the people you were um climbing with over the years you kept seeing them you know in south america Concagua, or you you know south america um, antarctica or everest back you've several trips so you'd keep seeing these folks and you became friends with them and then later in the book you said that many of them ended up dying over the years climbing I and mean, it's pretty yeah it's a small community the climbing yeah. community and it was very upsetting half a dozen of them or so are no you still lo- keep in, no longer with us are there some you still keep in keep in touch with yeah so so how much and the reason i brought that up was was the the boston marathon the, the not you know not getting to the seventh peak everest and you kind of talk there's a theme of of these 
things you almost accomplished but but didn't. But then you say it's kind of a good, you know, it can, it can be a, a frustrating thing to think about, but also it can be a, a good thing because that's, that's life, right? I mean, we, we don't always accomplish our goals, but we keep, you know, we keep going. Well, it's certainly humbling when you keep trying at something and, and don't make it and you have to learn how to deal with it. Um, I, I, uh, I dwelt on the whole business of failing on Everest for years. It haunted me. Um, so you, you tried three times, and you were 50 on your last attempt, right? Right. And there were only two people in history that had summited it at that time, at age 50 or older, Dave Breeshears and Dick Bass. So I was pushing the envelope. So there's two guys and, that you and, were— And they both had— they both had very conscientious guides with them at the time. So, so there's two other guys. I forget the names, but they were guys you've been climbing with for a while. And they basically, you, you, in the book, you said this. Your your wife, um, Shelley, you said this is the last time. We're not going to do it again. This is it. But then they had tried to get you to come back for a fourth attempt. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean? Do you ever look back and regret it or? Oh, yeah, of course I do. Because yeah. you said no to the one guy, but then the other guy called you and said, yeah. you actually said, he said you told the guy you would you would go. Yeah. Well, I, I walked out of uh, base camp with the guy that took uh, Hall Wendell. He's the guy that took Polaris public. And he had, oh, the, the company? Yeah, the... yeah, he had failed the summit that year also. And he wanted me to come back the next year with him, which would have been my fourth attempt. And, uh, and it was with a a world-famous climber that was going to just take the two of us. And and I said, I just, I can't do it. And I've already promised my wife I wasn't coming back twice. And if I, if I pull that again, I'm not going to have a wife. Huh. So, uh, what do you say some people lose their life and some people lose their wife climbing? Well, I, I like to tell people that I started climbing to save my marriage and I quit climbing to keep it. The other thing in the book that was interesting, there was a guy that was with you on the third attempt and I think he might have been a doctor and, and he decided to just said fuck it I'm leaving and you go why are you leaving and he goes I had a gut feeling to come here and now I have a gut feeling telling me to leave yeah and he can't argue with that and he came, but he came back later and some of it he came back the following year and he just, so he just said fuck it I'm leaving yeah I'm just I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on a said, whim he said I'm leaving tomorrow tomorrow morning I said well what's the matter he said I'm I don't have a good feeling about it. So, so you know, and and I don't, I don't, I climb a little bit, nothing like you. But um, it, is it frustrating? I mean, how how hard is it when you're like on an Everest attempt or any of these big summit attempts? It's not just like we, you know, if I go out and cl- climb Wolverine, I go up and I come down. When you're doing these big ones, you're going up and down, up and down, up and down. You know, Camp Two, Camp Three, Camp Two, Camp One. You know, base camp. Um, is it mentally? How mentally exhausting is it? To, to get to camp three and then you have to go down to base camp and then you have to go back up again. Well, I, I don't think that that's really much of an issue. It's always kind of good to go back down into the, you know, into the thicker atmosphere. Uh-huh. You know, you get back down to 14,000 feet at Farishay for a week or so before you go back up and practically run right up the mountain. Um, it's like going to the beach at 14,000 feet. In fact, when you get to base camp at 17.5, it's almost like being at the beach after you've been up to 21,000 feet or 22,000 feet. And it's it's nuts. You know, you talk about some days you're out there and you're wearing like short sleeve shirts yeah. and then the, you know, and the weather comes in and then you realize. Well, the West, the Western Coombe is, is basically a, uh, it's a box canyon and Everest is on one corner of it 
and Lhotse is on one and Noopsie is on another one. It's just this big box canyon. And uh, all the snow that comes down from around this horseshoe-shaped canyon goes into the center and works its way down to the opening at the, the bottom of it uh, where the Kumbu Glacier is. It's basically just a, a uh, frozen waterfall that you climb up through, which is one of the most dangerous parts of the trip. But you can be walking through the western Coombe when the sun's out uh, in the middle of the day and uh, literally um, be cold on one side and hot on the other. Huh. You, you could, or have you know feet that are on the edge of frostbite and peeling off clothes on the top because you're so hot. It's the, it's the solar radiation is so strong. But, you know, you take away that or bring in cloud cover and add some wind and everything changes. Yeah, there was a, one part where you, you uh, hadn't really didn't have the cold weather gear because it was a kind of hot day and then it came in real quick and you retreated back and you realized, you know, you didn't, it was got a pretty kind of close call. Everybody did. In fact, I think that was uh, the reason why Bob Cedargreen decided to turn around that year, the doctor that we were talking about a little while ago, because he was wearing his best boots on that day that he was going to summit in, and he had cold feet. Yeah, I don't want that. Real cold. So who was this woman? Um, some, not not some, figuratively either. Right. <laughs> Literally. Who, who was this woman? You, you were uh, some socialite woman. What would you call her? Susan somebody? or Yeah, Susie somebody. I made, so, so she, I made up her name. So is it somebody I would know? or? Well, if you... you said she was married to some big, if big you, if you media, read, media if you, guy. If you read Krakauer's book, you'd know who she was probably. Into thin air, yeah. Um, I read that years ago. I can't even remember that part. But so she was. So she was. Sounded like she was just really annoying you the whole time. How much money she was asking who who made the most money and how much money do people have? And that, that's all she cared about. So yeah. bizarre. And they said there was somebody else and, or this. And, and what you might have or what kind of influence you might have. She was always coming on to the guides. And um, you said there was somebody else that had their step adopted son or stepson or something who was like. You yeah. describe him as like overweight and smoking, and had no business being on the mountain. <laughs> None whatsoever. Yeah, he he was at a tent next to mine, smoking hashish. Oh God! Most of the time. So you that was your last time ninety three, right? Yeah. So what's that? You know, twenty over twenty five years. Doesn't, boy, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Um, yeah, there's other stuff I want to talk about in in the book as as well. So you um. You were talking about we'll go back before that to the to the Coots days, and you were we talked about the previous podcast, the seventies and the money and the oil and the eighties, early eighties, and the money's flowing and you know, all these other bars you were trying to get involved in, and the fires and people trying to fucking extort you from it was crazy shit. But in the in the cra- you talk in the book about the crash, the eighties crash, and how how bad it was, and I mean it must have really affected your your business. I mean. Years prior, you know, the oil's flowing. There's all these workers out drinking. I mean, how bad was it for you in in, in Coos? Well, it was it was terrible. It was when it was when Sheikh Imani opened the spigots in Saudi Arabia. You know, he was feuding with other OPEC members, and he flooded the world market. And all of the all of the oil states, including Alaska, just you know, the economies uh, crashed as the price of oil dropped by. More than half, just practically overnight. So, so the housing market was obviously the worst hit. But I mean, in a in a, in a 
people were dropping off their keys at Alaska uh-huh. as in mortgage and just driving down the highway. But in, in um, I mean, you're, you're, you're probably, I would imagine, less affected than other businesses, industries, because people always want to drink, right? Or is it not? Yeah. Maybe a, lot, a lot of people think that, but it's not true. The bar business, uh, you know, especially the nightclub business, it, uh, I mean, we relied on, on uh, people having expendable money. And when that dries up, so, so does our income. So how'd you? Uh, well, you know, people people show up. Uh, you know, instead of going out three or four nights a week, they go out one or two nights a week. Instead of going to a bar, they go to a private party. Um, instead of coming in the bar right away, they drink a six pack in their car. Um, maybe they put a pint in their coat pocket and bring it in. A little little pregame. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that uh, they start trying to. So I mean, how close were you? Like, what, what, what? When was it the worst for you? What was the worst part of of the the crash period? Well, I was in the in the mid eighties. Uh, I I got to a point where I'd borrowed all my money from my life insurance and from my four hundred one k, and I'd sold two uh, luxury condos in Hawaii. I'd taken a second mortgage on my home. Fuck. You know, I mean, I was I'd I'd done workouts with a couple of people that I owed money to for real estate. I did a workout with Alaska USA. I did a workout with uh, SBA. Um, you so know, you, you just you and, mean, obviously and, you just felt it was going to recover, and you just kept waiting, well, doing what you yeah, could to recover. Yeah, you know, and and of course the Exxon Valdez is what bailed us all out. So what what happened when Exxon Valdez? I mean, what happened then? I mean, how many pe- people were flooding up here, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Ex- Exxon Mobil spent couple of billion uh-huh. dollars trying to clean up the mess and uh, and it jump started the economy again so you you saw a lot, a lot of increased business from oh from sure, that? sure yeah, yeah it was back on a roll again i love that in the book you talk about how whenever you went to these mountains and all these places all over the world you'd bring the coots stickers or the coots t-shirts and you'd get you know you'd give them out to kids or people they and you have all these pictures you take of uh so there's coot stickers all over the world, right? Yeah. Well, there used to be. I talked to Vern Tejas about it not too long ago, and he said you just don't see that many of them anymore. But they used to be everywhere. Africa, Asia. Did you ever get Europe. somebody, I'm sure you've had it, where somebody came into the bar that you had met, you know, traveling, right? Or maybe had seen your sticker or somebody that said, hey, I'm here, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Anchorage. Has that ever happened? Oh, yeah, some guy complained to me one time about how he summited Kilimanjaro, and there he is on the top of the Kilimanjaro, and there's a Choco Charlie sticker on the on the uh, plaque up there celebrating Jules Nier, the first president of Kenya. So you saw him in Coots here? Or Tanzania, excuse me. Pardon? He, he was in Coots here? And- yeah, he, he, <laughs> he was in Coots, and, you know, he was joking about it, really, but he, he wasn't really complaining, but he says, guy, get to the top of the mountain, here's a coot sticker. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, yeah, the other the other thing that was really interesting for, for me is, um, I, I'm not sure if I told you, I've spent a lot of time in Russia and Ukraine, and I, I moved to Alaska in 04, and ended up meeting a Russian girl who lived here, and then I dated some other ones, and I, I learned to speak Russian, so I'm fascinated with Russia, and I've, I've been not just to, like, the big cities, I've been to other smaller Places where it's you know life's 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 a lot different, mm-hmm. and you talked about um, climbing uh, Elbrus, and you were there before the Soviet Union. I was there uh, during the Soviet Union, well, but b- before it ended. Yeah. So you you were there before the before the eighty nine. Is that right? Eighty. 
Yes. So you were there like at the height of the Perestroika and the Glasnost and the Gorbachev. Uh, uh, and- I was there three different times because it took me three times to get up Elbrus. I went in September the first two times and the weather was bad. And the third time I went in August and it was shirt sleeve weather on the summit. But uh, because of those three trips over extended period, I was there during the Soviet Union. I was there during Perestroika when things had opened up a little bit, but it was still pretty dreary. Uh-huh. And then I was there during the attempted coup against Gorbachev. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that I've, I've actually um, read that in the book you talk about that, and, and that was when um, there was a guy named Gennady Yanayev, who was a, a general, and they, they actually came in with tanks, and, and there was a coup happening. And it was, uh, so you, you were there during all of that. It was really yeah. very unre- a lot of unrest. Nobody knew it was going to happen. Right, and we... You know, if the if the coup had been successful, I mean, we were we were relatively certain that whoever was taking over the country wasn't going to be particularly friendly with it, the West. You guys would have been ripe for uh, some some special guests. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but it, it just you know, you read it, and I'm, I'm I I went, first went to Russia in '06, so much longer after you were there. But you, know, you go to you go to Moscow or St. Petersburg; it's kind of like any city. But you get out in the you know, middle of Siberia or the Caucasus or other mm-hmm. places, and you start to see a whole different kind of world. Yeah, and, uh, of, course, of course, we saw part of that when we were out in in Georgia, you know, in, in the Boxon Valley. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about, you know, like the lack of amenities, the lack of hot water, all these different, you know, and the, some of the food. I actually like Russian food, but some people don't like it. And yeah, I think you, you had talked about some of the... Well, it was pretty limited. <laughs> I used to walk into the cafeteria and uh, take a look at the fly-covered selection and just pick up an apple and walk out. Um, of course, we were staying in a quote-unquote resort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'd open the window and turn the handle, and uh, the, it'd fall off in your hands. You know, it was hard to believe that um, Russia was uh, pointing nuclear missiles at us. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, could, couldn't even properly feed the population. Well, that's 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 part of the reason. I mean, they, the Soviet Union invested so much and spent so much on their defense. Yeah, that you know, even if you even nowadays we look at the Olympics, the Sochi Olympics, it was fifty billion dollars. It was more than all the previous Winter Olympics combined. And there's all these folks living around Sochi and the Caucasus who are you know just living very poor. And, and, and I suppose they make. Could make decent wine there, but I never tasted any. Oh, Georgian Georgian wine is really good. Well, I made a joke about it in the book about how, you know, these wines were that that we had at the resort were so bad that they probably were the reason for Napoleon invading. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, you know, the, the reason Napoleon wasn't able to successfully invade, he got into Russia and he wasn't able to conquer because. The Russians on the retreat, they they burned everything. Yeah. They just said, "Fuck it, we're yeah. not going to let somebody." I mean, that's yeah. the Russian mentality: is like burn Moscow. Yep, you 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 yeah, you know, we 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 ain't going to get it. You ain't going to get it. Yeah, and he totally uh, same with the you know the Germ the Germans trying to invade. They just underestimated the willpower of the of the Russian people. I mean, they're a very resilient. Their history has made them toughest people in the world. Yeah. So so I just reading the book. I'm just some of the stuff you're talking about. I just kind of funny because I can totally see. I've been there, you know, I've seen that kind of stuff. And um, all these places you've seen, you know, Russia and Soviet Union and Tibet and South America, I mean, South America, parts of South America. And, I mean, you, you've, um, 
we've seen more of the world than you know probably ninety five percent of people. How much when you came when you come back to Alaska? I mean, what? How much does that make you kind of appreciate all all what you have here? Oh, just coming back to America, you know. Much yeah, less, right. Much less Alaska. You know, there were flights out of uh, out of uh, Saint Petersburg, for instance. Uh, you know, they you'd fly out of Saint Petersburg after being in Soviet Russia or you know quasi Soviet Russia. Um, for two or three weeks, and uh, you'd be on a plane full of people that were happy campers. I mean, as as soon as that plane touched the tarmac in Helsinki or Copenhagen or wherever it was, the plane would erupt in applause. Everybody on the plane was screaming and carrying on, you know. Yeah, if they could have, they'd have gotten out and kissed the ground, I'm sure, because it was so miserable. It was so bleak. It was so oppressive. I mean, it's it's... If you you can't even imagine it unless you've actually been in it, you know you read books like 1984 Orwellian stuff. I mean, it's real. <laughs> that's well, that's you, exactly the way it is. You had earlier in the book talked a lot about Tibet too, and the you know struggles they they've had mm-hmm. with China. Yeah, well, that's the reason why the book is banned in China because I they didn't like what I had to say about Tibet. The mind the minders. Yeah, I've been to the Bokar. Uh, square in in uh, Lhasa, and you know this is the most holy place in the country, and uh, uh, it's it's walled in, and on top of the walls around it, and on the buildings inside it, are sandbag machine gun emplacements with young Chinese soldiers behind the trigger. Didn't you say you um, one part? Didn't you sneak something in some some. St- I, stu- I snuck in some Dalai Lama buttons. Dalai Lama, yeah, that's into, right, yeah. Into, the, into Tibet on my first attempt. Fuck, what, if, what if they would have caught you? Fuck. Well. What if they would have done? <laughs> Probably just not let you in? <laughs> well, I'm not going back to China. I, I'm sure they've got my name on a list over there at this point. So what happens? So you wrote the book, and then who, who did you have to submit? Are there, are there Chinese minders who read read this stuff and... Well, you know, we decided to have the book published in China because it was the cheapest place to get it done. And and, and frankly, I thought um, originally that it was going to actually be printed in Hong Kong because my uh, contact here in Anchorage taught publications. Uh, Flip Todd had told me that he, he talked about his contact in Hong Kong. Well, he did have a contact in Hong Kong, but the actual printing was done on the mainland through this contact of his in Hong Kong. And um, at a certain point, after the book had been printed, and when it was uh, uh, palletized and, and supposed to be getting containerized, um, his contact in, in Hong Kong told him that the authorities in China had questioned a couple of photographs that were in the book that were taken in Tibet. And they don't even like to hear the word Tibet, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told Flip, I said, if they if they read that chapter, they're not going to like it because I'd made some pretty derogatory comments about. Yeah, the you, you didn't and, you didn't mince words about your thoughts on Tibet. Yeah. So, um, well, they they did read it and they didn't like it and they wanted me to remove the entire chapter, and I had a couple of choice words for them and uh, and that was the end of that. Well, they confiscated all six thousand books. And uh, 
Oh, shit. And banned it in China. And uh, when I found out about it, I Who said- Who did, the government? Hmm? The government or the publisher or the- The, the government. I guess probably they're one and the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Chinese government, the officials, confiscated all the books and banned them in China. And when I heard about it, I said to Flip, I said, you didn't pay the printer, did you? Because, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd written him a pretty big check to, uh-huh. to pay the printer. And he said, no, I didn't. I said, oh, God, thank God. At least, yeah, they, they at least I'm not going to have to start all over from scratch. Can you imagine getting that money back from a guy on mainland China? <laughs> Never would have happened. They probably had a little book-burning party over yeah, there. Yeah. So anyway, I had to start all over with the printing um, uh, bid process, and we ended up getting Jocelyn to – they're the people that print the uh, school uh, – um, Annuals, you know, uh-huh. um, textbooks. Text, well, not textbooks, but the the books you get at the end of the year, you know. Oh, the yeah, your class, books, class year books. Yeah, that's yeah. a great. I mean, I'm holding it right now. It's just anyway, I, they, I, I love the I love the cover. It's well, they printed cover. it, but it was it was another sixty seven hundred bucks. Oh, I just I didn't even realize this on the side. This is the first I've noticed. It's a, it says it says fucking banned in China. Yeah, with the Chinese flag. I didn't even realize that until you until I turned it over. Wow, that's that's great. Good for you. Yeah, no, you shouldn't capitulate to that kind of shit. No. Um, so the other thing, I think maybe the, the main the kind of ending of the book, the afterword, is, uh, and this had, I think, maybe some symbolism or a theme to some of these not doing the marathon and not doing the Everest, is um, you went back when you were, I'm not sure if you were in your 60s or f- late 50s when you got your, you finished your degree mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Um, I was almost 70. Because you, you know, you read the book, but basically you were there and you got married and you had a kid, so you moved back to Alaska and you were three years in, so you decided, you know, you always want, I guess you always had, it bothered you you didn't finish your schooling. Right. So you contact them and they said, you know, nobody got back to you, you know, fuck it. Yeah. But then your buddy, uh, <clears throat> let me talk about your buddy and then his connection and then how you kind of got going and, and how they eventually ended up helping you. Well, he, he was a, a fellow who had uh, graduated in 1964 when I should have graduated. Uh, I I didn't go back from well, I went back for my senior year, but I ended up going back to work instead of going to school. So I had 17 units left in order to graduate that uh, you know I hadn't completed for 48 years, and it always bothered me. And I uh, went to visit him in Bend, Oregon. Um, he was retired and. Um, He'd gone back to USF after he'd spent some time in the Coast Guard and got a master's degree and went on with another career and so forth. So, And he lived in the Bay Area all those years, so he had contacts at the school. So my wife and I went to visit him. He he got uh, prostate cancer. And uh, so we went down to Bend to visit him, and I was kind of shocked at the way he looked. We had a wonderful week with him. And uh, during the week, I happened to mention to him that I had written the school and asked them about how I could go about finishing up my degree. And uh, how disappointed I was that I hadn't heard anything. And uh, he said, "What's your middle name? Your what's your middle what's your middle name?" I said, "William." And uh, that was pretty much the end of the conversation. And so I get back to Anchorage and I got an email from the University of San Francisco. <laughs> He called it in. He obviously knew somebody there, yeah. So um, they accommodated my my uh, requirements. They, uh, I was the first uh, 
person to uh, to ever graduate from USF uh, in that fashion. They put me in contact with uh, a coordinator there, and and I had direct contact with my uh, professors after deciding after the powers that were decided what I had to take well, for cl- classes and so forth. And they, to they had to fi- my degree. They had to find your. They had to. Search for your transcripts. They, they were in some in some warehouse in some yeah. box, right? They they weren't they weren't stored online with those of people who graduated. They were in some tactile archive someplace, and and so they did finally find them and brought my records into the twenty first century. And, um, and I spent uh, well, I I took the seventeen credits in in one semester. I didn't want to spread it out. Um, because I wanted to go down and walk the stage with the kids, and I wanted Jim to be there with me when I did. I did. I did a eighteen and, credits one semester, and, he, and it was it was murder. And he was he was there, and not only was he there, but he brought his wife, and he also brought uh, the widow of one of our other roommates and one of our other roommates. So they we were all there when I graduated. He's and, the guy who had prostate cancer, right? Yeah, and he's since died. Died in two thousand ten. So it was a wonderful weekend um, with my college roommates there, and my daughter and my son-in-law showed up also. And you said that the news got a hold of it, and there was a and my wife big news news. I tried, yeah, to, I tried it, to look for it, it online because you said it was a big became like a big it, national. It, it went nationwide. Yeah, Mike Gordon graduates USF forty-eight years late. They got something like two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of free advertising over the whole deal. Wow! So that was in twenty was it twelve. 2011. 2011? Yeah. So, uh, you have your degree, huh? It's pretty. <laughs> yeah. So I had, had, I had my degree and I decided since I'd gone back to school, I might as well keep going. So I went back to school and got a, at Alaska Pacific University and got a master's degree in writing. And, uh, that's the reason why the book got written because, uh, it never would have gotten written otherwise. I was floundering around. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, uh, I spent, three years uh, concentrating on my memoir uh, and working on it full time and and reading other memoirs and critiquing them and studying them and so forth. And then I spent you know, a year or so after graduation working on it too. So. Well, it's incredible. I mean, I, um, you know, reading the book, I think mo- most people – it's 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 um it's telling when somebody decides to be so open about their life. I think all of us have had challenges and ups and downs, but not everybody writes a book about it. So, mm-hmm. but you know, reading the book, I mean, it, it's you've accomplished so many things. You've done so many great, you know, the business and the climbing, and but you've also had a really, you know, in some ways, challenge with your with your child, your parents, and your uh, death and friends early and later, and your marriages and. It just, I mean, it seems like you've had such a kind of up and down life. I mean, what, what, looking back at all this stuff, obviously the book probably, would, did it help? Oh, writing the book was cathartic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, just the, the cocaine issue. Uh, when I was writing the book uh, while I was at the university, at, at Alaska Pacific University, my mentor, um, you know, I was writing on that particular chapter and I I felt bit I was didn't want to write it you know I felt 
awkward writing about the cocaine because I was embarrassed. That's my that's one of my favorite parts. And he said, <laughs> he said you yeah. never had to buy it because everybody had it. Yeah, well, he he said, well, just write it down, Mike. You can always cut it out later if you don't like it. And so I wrote it down, and by golly, yeah, I got done writing, and I felt pretty good about it. You know, it, it was just uh, kind of like I'd erased it from from uh, my uh, feelings about it. I, re- I I just I didn't feel badly about it anymore. Thought, so what? Okay, you know. Uh, I was able to quit anyway and move on with my life. And people have commented about uh, how brutally honest I am in the book and uh, in my relationships and so forth. And, and uh, you know, my response is, why bother writing a memoir if you're not going to mm-hmm. if you're not going to dig into it and dig, you know, dig, well, I think some people dig are, deep into your psyche. And some people try to be maybe a little more choosy about you know what they. I lo- I love the book and. You know, that's the other thing I, w- I wanted to ask is, you know, you talk about the... That's what makes the book worthwhile, I think, is the fact that I did dig in and, mm-hmm. and, and divulge and deal with my my issues in public. You know, looking at, you know, some of the... Like you talk about the infidelity and the drug use and not, you know, getting to Everest. I mean, do you have do you have any regrets? And, and if you if you do, what, if one thing you could do different, what would you do different? Uh, the Everest thing it, seemed to be a big. No, I have no regrets about that. I have no regrets about anything. I should have, I should have hung in there with my first marriage uh, until my kids were completely grown. That's my only regret. Is she, do you still keep in touch with her? Is she still? Oh yeah, my first wife and I are very friendly today, and and I have a great relationship with my kids and my grandkids and all that. But. I still feel, you know, if, if I had anything to do over again, that's one thing that I would do differently. I feel like maybe the uh, the Tiffany situation. <laughs> the what? The Tiffany situation. The I second. Would, I wouldn't do anything differently there, except that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have married her in the first place. Man, that's wild. The whole theme of um, the the. I guess she at one point, you know, said you had a kid out there and you weren't sure and. They got a hold well, of you. She much. told me I had a kid out there, but I I pretty much knew that I I knew in my gut that it wasn't my kid, and it wasn't. But they did they did years years later come come to you right? Or they he found did. you? He did. We did a DNA test, and he wasn't my kid. Didn't you say he looked like one of the Coots bartenders? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I saw the picture, and I said he looks like Bob Dingle. <laughs> Who knows? Well, you know, it's just uh, such a fascinating book and I, i've been recommending it to people and i um you know i just finished it and it's uh you're doing another another book right you're working on i'm writing a sequel uh, right now it's called dag nabbit but i haven't settled on that name some people including my wife seem to think that it's not the best name for it but um there were i have so many stories uh that i couldn't put into this book because you know with a memoir you end up cutting 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 so that you can get to a tight story so, you, should, you should do the uh, book on tape deal where you read it. Well, I I might do that. Um, I've got some some, okay. some short stories, some of which are in the book that are that are on tape that can be had on my website. Um, there's that there's that kind of chapter about the uh, what is it the fuck the duck club or something or that's not on there, but. Uh, Spinard Duck and Fuck Club. Yeah. Spinard, yeah, so you, that was a group of us. That, that's that was the official name of our duck hunting group that used to go over across the inlet every open 
day, every opening season, opening day, every season for twenty plus years. I like how you talked about the the. It was more about maybe poker and drinking than duck hunting, but it's that's oh, there was plenty of duck hunting too. But uh, sometimes it could uh, be a very expensive duck for some of those guys, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I when I moved here in '04, I started. Um, I worked at Cal Worthington, sold cars, and then I got into the gambling. The Hold'em kind of thing got big. So I started dealing in these underground poker games here for years at Anchorage. And, you know, I started playing all the other all the other games. I actually prefer the other, like the stud games or the high-low games. I do, too. I, I you, hate Texas Hold'em. You, you talk about in the book how one's this Hold'em thing took over. It's like, fuck, you know, everybody wants to play this bullshit, yeah, stupid yeah. Hold'em game. Yeah, you mean, it, it happens every time, you know. You'll be playing poker and playing stud and draw and so forth, and somebody will say, let's play Texas Hold'em, and that's it. Then that's all you play for the rest of the time. Yeah, no, I, hate, I, I hate that. It sounded fun, though. Duck hunting trips. sounded like you guys... With the one guy, you said he came, and he was being a little baby, and they kept making fun of him, and he, he wanted to leave, and then they couldn't... The weather came in? Yeah, I didn't know that guy before the trip. He owned a gas station, and he was invited by some of the other guys on the trip, and... and uh, they started razzing him. Uh, oh boy, what was it? What they call him? Snub. Um, there's that word they kept calling him, and yeah. I just read that part last night. But he. Uh, Why do they call him? Was it snubby? Oh, it was some weird. I have to look. But it was really funny. So he got mad and he just like he left and he called the charter. Right. <laughs> he yeah. He got so pissed off that he uh, he went next door. Uh, there was a, pl- a platform over there, but no roof. And uh, he and he called the the flight service to come get him. Well, they couldn't come get him because the weather turned bad. So he ended up having to come back into the tent. Lumpy. Oh, yeah, Lumpy. Lumpy, Lumpy, Lumpy. lumpy, lumpy, lumpy. Yeah. Why do they call him Lumpy? <laughs> I don't know. Lumpy, Lumpy, Lumpy. <laughs> Lumpity Lump. So anyway, Lumpy went next door. And then, <laughs> lumpy. you know, he, he was a self-imposed outcast. And then they couldn't pick him up because of the weather, and he ended ended up come back coming back to the cabin, having to spend another night with us. Jesus <laughs> Christ! <laughs> uh, well, well, folks can get the book online, right? And then you're you're, out, you're doing some more signing book signing because you because you live in Halibut Cove, but you come back here to Anchorage once a month or something, right? Right. Yeah. I got I gotta I gotta get I, out there sometime. And I, I've never I, been to Halibut Cove before. Well, you should come visit us. I spend uh, one. Uh, I spend a day, a weekend day, at uh, both Costco's each month. Uh, and I'm going to be at uh, the Diamond Store tomorrow from 10 o'clock until I run out of books. And then they ordered a whole bunch more because I'm selling so many. Uh, so Saturday and Sunday I'm going to be, well, Saturday I'm going to be at DeBar. Sunday I'm going to be at uh, Diamond again. And I'll be there from 10 o'clock on all day. Um because they've ordered seventy-two more books at each store, it's going to take me better, gotta, gotta get better, that. better part of a day gotta to get sign and sell all those. Practicing with that hand, you know, yeah. signing the <laughs> signing the name. Well, Mike, I you know I I, um, I love doing these podcasts with you. It's uh, like looking back in a little bit of a window of history here, Anchorage, and the uh, the book really. I think you know for folks interested in Alaska or Anchorage or climbing or partying or anything all of that it's uh it's a great it's a great read learning the ropes and i'm looking forward to the to the second one when's that do you have a timeline for that or i'm hopeful to get it out sometime next year i'll definitely uh, mid mid-year 
be picking that up. And I did, I did, um, I did contact. I wrote, I wrote to the Joe Rogan people. I told you about the Joe Rogan podcast. Right. Probably the, it's the most popular podcast in the world. Right. And he does it there in L.A. So I, I told him about you, and I, I said, "You got to fucking, you got to get this guy." Uh, he's probably been to Coots. You know, he's a comedian, stand-up comedian. So hopefully we can get you on the Joe Rogan. All right. Because that'll be man. That would. I'm ready for that. That'd be uh, that'd be awesome. So I'm. I'm well, it's been on that. it's been great getting to know you. Yeah, no, I so. I I, when I I bring your name up all the time. It's funny because one more thing you mentioned Bob Lester in the book. Mm-hmm. There's so many people in the book that I know, like Mr. White Keys or or know of. You know Bob Lester I know very well, or mm-hmm. you know Norm Rokeberg. I saw you know it's all these people in the book that you I've I've known or I've or, or I've heard of. You know Frank Murkowski's in the book when you almost had to call him in for a favor when you were detained <laughs> yeah. and. Or almost detained. Oh, when and, I was afraid I was going to be detained in Tibet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So Bob, you, Bob came into Coots at some point, right, and helped you out. Yeah, he was he, working for he, you. He worked for us for quite a while. Um, he's pretty, uh, pretty entertaining guy, and he he had a big following. He'd been working downtown, and we hired him. And it was at a time when the changing, you know, dancing music formats were changing, and and he. Uh, he brought in a huge crowd for us for a long time. He's a pretty talented guy. Oh, his radio, you know, it's everybody knows him. Pardon? Everybody knows him. You know, he's so yeah. you know, well known with the, with the radio stuff. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I I, I want to definitely keep in touch with you, and it's uh, it's been great, kind of like I said, getting that glimpse into the Anchorage history because I moved here in '04, so you know, and even then I was born in '84, so. Mm-hmm. Go back into all that stuff in the seventies. It's it's like if I could go back in time, I think anywhere in the in the history of the world, I I think I might pick like mid seventies Anchorage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget your piece. Yeah, well, I think you could probably everybody. It seemed like back then, if you really wanted to make money, you could have made money, right? If you were just committed to doing something and sticking to it and having a business. Yeah, well, in the bar business too in Alaska in those days. I mean, if you. If you couldn't make money in the bar business in those days, boy, <laughs> yeah, you weren't very talented. Well, def- definitely keep in touch, Mike, and uh, you know we'll we'll do another one of these down the road. And looking forward to your new book. And I definitely want to get down to Halibut Cove at some right. point. Be, yeah. a, be a be a fun trip. You have an open invitation. I appreciate that, folks. So it's Learning the Ropes by Mike Gordon. Highly recommend the book. And, um, Mike, thanks again for stopping by, and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, all right? All right. It's been great fun. Yeah. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, uh, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.